You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church, Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. that the book of Romans is going to deal with five major themes. Uh, And the first theme that we're going to be looking at is dealing with sin. In in this section, Paul is really placing all of humanity on trial. God is the judge. Uh, We are the ones who are accused. And Paul's going to reveal to us that we are guilty of sin. And not only are we guilty, but we also are now going to suffer the judgment of God. And so what Paul shares in this section on sin is very important to understand, and there's two main reasons for that. The first reason is you can't understand the good news of the gospel until you understand the bad news of sin and its consequences. You know, this is why those of us who went to Uganda and we trained to share the gospel, we we started with recognizing we got to share the bad news and then we share the good news. Because we're going to see here in chapters three through five, that Paul is going to go into great detail about salvation and all the wonderful things that God has done to save us. But you know what? It's not very impactful unless you understand the bad news, unless you understand what it is that you need to be saved from. Uh, So we need to understand that we are sinners. We need to understand that there is a consequence that we will receive from being sinners, which ultimately is hell. And when you grasp that, all of a sudden you see salvation in a very different light. Because most people in the world today, they think, well, I'm a good person. They don't really see that they need to be saved from anything. And so if we don't start with this reality, then they don't recognize, oh, wow, salvation is wonderful. I need that. I'm, I'm desperate for that. I'm lost without that. And so this wrath, this bad news, this sin is something that is desperately needed uh, to be proclaimed. David Hill said this about this section on sin. Instead of plunging at once into an exposition of the gospel, Paul launches into a lengthy exposure of the sinfulness of man. This is sound procedure. For unlike, uh, for until men are persuaded of their lost condition, they are not likely to be concerned about deliverance. So the first reason this section on sin is so important is because, you know, you're not going to understand the good news of the gospel until you first understand the bad news that we are sinners and there is a consequence to our sin. The second reason this section on sin is important to us is because this world is attacking truth. You know, we live in a world today, I'm sure that you recognize the reality that our world wants to say that truth is relative, that there's no such thing as an absolute truth, an absolute standard for everyone to have to live under. So what is true for me is just, that's truth. And what is true for you is is true for you. And, you know, we can all have our own truth, especially when it comes to morality. We're not under an absolute standard. 
Now, one of the main reasons that the world is attacking truth or trying to undermine this uh, absolute standard of truth is because they don't want to be held accountable for their sin. They, they don't want to have someone who is going to judge them. They don't want to be held accountable to a God who establishes a standard for all mankind to be judged under. So when the world says, you know, something's not a sin, then what they're doing is they're saying, hey, this isn't a sin when God's word says it is, so they're attacking the truth of sin. When, when the world says, oh, there's no consequences to sin, they're attacking the truth of God's word that says, actually, there are consequences. So the second reason why this section on sin is so important to understand is because our world is attacking the truth of sin. It's attacking the truth of the fact that there are consequences to sin, and we need to know the truth so that we don't fall for these lies. You know, sadly, and I'm sure many of you maybe have been in churches or met Christians or maybe even heard pastors from the pulpit teach, and you realize that we are adopting oftentimes the world's philosophy about sin and the consequences of it, avoiding talking about it, saying it's not actually sin when the Bible clearly does, and we're ultimately buying into the lie instead of standing for the truth. So this morning, as we start this section on sin, we're going to be looking at this attack on truth, and specifically the attack on the truth of sin and the truth of the consequences of sin. In the remainder of chapter 1, we're going to focus on four main things. First, suppressing truth. Second, substituting truth. Third, the consequences for abandoning truth. And then finally, ignoring truth. And so let's start here where we left off, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and we're going to see how the world tries to suppress God's truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul starts off here after his introduction, gets straight into sin, and notice the first thing that he brings up is the wrath of God of God that is revealed from heaven. Now notice that when Paul is speaking about the wrath of God, he uses the present tense. It is happening now. I think so often we think of the wrath of God, we think of the future. Well, yes, there is a future wrath that is going to be horrible, which is hell, but there's also a present wrath of God. And Paul's going to share some of how God's wrath is being poured out presently on those who are sinful in the world today. Now, when we hear this word wrath, so often it's hard for us to associate this word with God, because as we see wrath, we kind of see it only in a sinful way. And it's interesting that in the Greek language, there are two words that you could translate wrath. And it's important to note which one Paul uses in connection with God, because there's another word that the Bible always connects with you and I. Uh, the first word that is in Greek that you could translate wrath is Thumos, it means a passionate outburst of anger and uncontrollable rage. You know, when the Bible speaks of, you know, you and I and our wrath, it uses this Greek word because that's what we are. We have this outburst of anger, this uncontrollable rage, which is sinful. Uh, and so when wrath is connected to people, they use this word. But it's interesting, Paul did not use this word thumos. He uses the other Greek word that can be translated wrath, which is org. Now, Charles Mogul, who's a Greek scholar, he says this about this Greek word, org. Org is not the momentary, emotional, and often uncontrolled anger to which human beings are prone. 
Instead, it's God's settled indignation and controlled, passionate, hostile feeling towards sin and all its various manifestations. Settled indignation means that God's holiness cannot and will not coexist with sin in any form whatsoever. God's wrath is his holy hatred of all that is unholy. It is his righteous indignation at everything that is unrighteous. So understand that God's wrath and our wrath is very different. God's wrath is connected to his holiness. It's connected to who he is as his righteous God. It has no connection to sin because he is sinless. Our wrath, on the other hand, is completely connected to sin. It's not connected to holiness. It's not connected to righteousness. We do it because of our sinful behavior. So Paul makes very clear that the wrath of God is upon mankind. Well, why? Why is God's wrath upon mankind? The rest of this chapter is going to reveal that. But in this verse, he gives us three reasons to start with. God's wrath is upon mankind because of all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness, in its basic form, refers to man's sin against God. Unrighteousness is more of man's sin against other men or other women. And so here we start off with our sin against God brings wrath upon us. Our sin against one another brings wrath upon us. But Paul says there's another reason as well that God's wrath is upon us. It's on those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Greek word here translated suppress means to hold back or detain. It was often used to refer to a helmsman steering a boat against the current. The current wants to take a boat in a particular direction, but the helmsman was determined to go the opposite way. So he holds the rudder in such a way that he goes his own way instead of the way of the current. Those who suppress the truth hold back and detain God's truth. They're wanting to steer themselves in the opposite direction of the truth of God. They don't want it. Winston Churchill said this, Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. You know, sadly, we live in a world that suppresses truth. They don't want the truth of God. They, they want to get away from God. They want the opposite of what God declares to be truth. So God's wrath is upon those who sin against him. It's upon those who sin against others. And it's upon those who suppress his truth and unrighteousness. Now Paul, he wants us to understand the wrath of God because this world, this is one of the main things, one of the main truths that is attacked. Oh no, no, you're not going to suffer any wrath from God. You can live the way you want. You can do whatever you want, whatever lifestyle you choose. It's fine. There will be no wrath connected to the way in which you live. They do this because they want to feel comfortable that they're not answerable to anyone, that they can live how they want, they don't have to worry about any repercussions. You know, one of the biggest lies of the world, one of the biggest lies of Satan that started in the Garden of Eden is you will not suffer the consequences of your sin. That's what Satan wants us to believe. That's what the world wants us to believe. You can live however you want. There aren't going to be consequences for your actions. Sadly, this lie has infiltrated the church it has influenced Christians, it has influenced pastors, and we bought in many people to the lie that, oh yes, God's wrath will not come upon sinful 
behavior. J.I. Packard said this about God's wrath. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. We're seeing a trend in the church today, a trend that is kind of uh, the word that's used is seeker-sensitive in the sense of, you know what, we want to do everything we can to make sinful people feel comfortable in our church, and you know what makes them uncomfortable? The wrath of God. So let's not talk about the wrath of God. Let's not bring that up because they don't want to hear it. That makes them feel uncomfortable. And so we won't even deal with it. We won't deal with sin. We won't deal with the consequence of sin. And they will love the words that we proclaim. And then when we tell them about Jesus, we're really just telling them about how Jesus can enhance their life. But the Bible doesn't say we need an enhancer. The Bible says that we need a savior. But the problem is they're not going to know they need a savior until they understand what it is they need to be saved from. They need to be saved from the wrath of God. If we avoid that subject, if we avoid that topic, then they will never grasp what they truly need salvation from, and they will not appreciate the gospel message. They will not appreciate the grace of God. They will not grasp his love and his mercy for them until they first understand that his wrath is upon them. And so this is such a vital thing not only to understand but also to proclaim to the world that does not want to believe in and has abandoned the truth of the wrath of God being upon them because of their sin. So humanity's on trial. Paul wants us to understand, hey, we're guilty sinners. The judge, righteous God, he is going to pour his wrath upon you because of it. Now, humanity, like it often does, will probably want to bring up excuses for why they don't deserve to be judged by God, why don't they don't deserve the wrath of God. And they might throw out questions like, what about those of us who didn't know any better? What about those of us who never heard about God or, or never knew there was a God? How could we be held accountable? How could God's wrath be poured out upon us? And I'm sure as you've shared with people, you've heard someone say, well, what about that random person out in the middle of Africa or something that never heard about God? How could God hold them responsible? Well, in these next two verses, Paul is going to answer that question for us. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In these verses, Paul makes clear nobody has an excuse to escape the wrath of God. Nobody has an excuse. Why? Because it's clear that God has manifested himself to us. He's revealed himself to us. Well, how did God reveal himself? Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Paul wants to say, hey, we all know or should know there's a God. He's revealed himself through what? Through his creation. His creation has revealed his eternal power, his Godhead, his invisible attributes. It's seen in what he has made in this creation that all of us see and live in every day. And so nobody has an excuse for rejecting the reality that there is a God, because God has revealed himself through creation. Charles Hodge says this, all creation is an outstretched finger pointing to God. 
You know, something important for us to understand is that God has revealed himself to mankind in two different ways. Bible scholars refer to it like this. The general revelation of God and the special revelation of God. What Paul is speaking about here is the general revelation of God, how God has generally revealed that he exists through creation. God's creation reveals that there is a creator, that there is a designer. For any of you who have been to an art gallery or have seen a famous piece of art, let's say something like the Mona Lisa, you go in and as you look at this piece of art, you now have a general revelation. That piece of art reveals to you something. There's an artist. Somebody created that. Somebody took the time to paint that. Somebody did that. You see generally because of that piece of art that there is a artist, there is a creator, there is a designer. But as you look at that piece of art, you do not have a special revelation. You don't know who the artist is. You don't know anything about that art just by looking at it. So if you needed to get special revelation, then you would have to meet Leonardo da Vinci. You would have to read a biography about him if you wanted to know about the artist. Well, the same is true with the revelation of God. Creation, which is far more detailed and far more fascinating than you know, Mona Lisa's artwork, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that we see in creation where we recognize that God has shown that he is the creator through his creation. Psalm 19, 1 and 2, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. The psalmist is saying, hey, God's creation just cries out. It reveals to us that there is a creator. You can't deny that there is his handiwork is shown for all to see. I mean, we could pick so many different things, but let's just pick the human body, the thing that we look in the mirror every day. I mean, when you look at the detail, when you look at the intricacy, you know, to buy into a lie that says we somehow evolved, you know, when you look at what we are, you just come to the conclusion we were designed. Someone created us specifically the way that we are. You know, our bodies are made up of trillions of amazing complex cells that each perform their own complex function. Let's just consider the cells in your eye for a moment. How is it possible that you can look around this morning, that you can read your Bible, that you can look at me? Inside your eyeball, there are 120 million cells called rods and 6 million cells called cones. As light enters the eye, the lens refracts an upside-down image upon the cones and rods. These images, they translate into little electronic messages that travel along some 500,000 neurons, and they go to your brain. Your brain then assembles millions of simultaneously bits of data, merges them together to create one three-dimensional image. Then your brain flips it over, and that's how you see. And it happens pretty much instantaneously. That's how you and I have sight. Once again, it just reveals the design. You know, this isn't something that just randomly happened. God specifically put all of this together so it would work just the way he designed it to. So creation reveals to us there's a God, a creator. It's the general revelation that God exists. But creation doesn't reveal who God is. It doesn't reveal what he's like. It doesn't reveal his plan for you. It doesn't reveal what he's done for us. In order to get that information, you need special revelation. And special revelation comes 
through the word of God and the son of God. Here's what Paul wants us to understand. Since God has revealed himself generally through creation, no one can claim there's no God. No one's going to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, you can't pour your wrath on me. I didn't know. Yeah, you did. My creation showed who I was. My creation revealed that I exist. You just wanted to suppress that and deny that. You do not have an excuse. Ronald Reagan says something about those who don't believe in God. Sometimes when I'm faced with an unbelieving atheist, I am tempted to invite him to the greatest gourmet dinner that one could ever serve. And when we finished eating that magnificent dinner to ask him if he believes there's a cook. Ronald Reagan understood, you know what, if, if there's a wonderful cooked meal, what does that reveal? Someone cooked it. There is a cook in the kitchen making that. It didn't just randomly come together and all of it just miraculously appear on the table. But that is what those who are atheists ultimately want to buy into, that we're just all random accidents over you know, billions of years of evolution, and here we are. No, God, through his creation, has revealed there is a creator, there is a designer. Now, here's why this is so important. We have general revelation, we have special revelation, but I want you to understand something that we need to keep in mind. When you reject the general revelation of God, you're not going to seek out special revelation. When you reject there is a God, you reject there is a creator, you reject there is a designer, why are you going to seek out that which you don't believe exists? Why are you going to want to learn more about that which you don't think is actually real? So those who reject general revelation will never seek to find the most important thing of all, the special revelation of who God is, what he's done for us, how he saved us from our sin. They're not going to look into that because they don't believe that he exists. And this is why the theory of evolution, the lie of evolution, will I say, is so dangerous because ultimately at its core, it is denying the general revelation of God, which is keeping people from ever wanting to seek out the special revelation of God. If the world can convince you God does not exist, then you will never seek him. You will never seek to find out who he is. You will never seek to find out what he has done for you. You see, this world is not just attacking the truth of God's wrath. They are attacking the truth of God's existence as a whole. And Paul wants us to understand those who suppress the truth of God's wrath, those who suppress the truth of God's existence, they are without excuse. God has revealed enough of himself through his general revelation to condemn you. But you know what? He's also revealed enough of himself through his special revelation to save you. But if you reject the first, you'll never find the second. And this is why this is so important that we don't just think, oh, who cares if the world rejects and lies and, and says all these things? Well, it has a huge implication on the gospel and on people coming to know Jesus Christ. So the first thing that Paul reveals to us concerning this attack on truth is how this world suppresses God's truth. Now we're going to see, Paul share with us, how the world doesn't just suppress it, they substitute it for something Far worse. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Paul starts off revealing that the problem is not that they did not know God. 
Actually, the problem is that they do know God, and it's what they do with that knowledge. That is the issue. They know God. They know that because Paul just said, hey, creation reveals he exists. So what do they do with that knowledge? Well, Paul reveals something that they do here. They refuse to glorify him as God. They refuse to be thankful to him for creating them, and it leads to something. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creepy things. Our rejection of God's general revelation does not make us smarter. It does not make us wiser. It makes us foolish. You know, the world wants us to believe that we as Christians are so foolish and stupid to believe in a God, to believe in a creator. But that is a lie, a lie that goes completely against what the Bible says. The one who is truly foolish is not the one who believes in God's word, not the one who believes in God's existence. It's the one who rejects it. Psalm 14.1 tells us this, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the one who's truly foolish, according to the one who knows all, according to the one who has inspired scripture. He says, the real fool is not the one who denies God. The real fool is the, I mean, the real fool is the one who denies God, not the one who accepts God. Now, after they became fools for rejecting God, notice what Paul tells us in verse 23. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Notice what's taking place here. They are trading. They are exchanging the truth of God and changing it for a God that they create. You know, the Greek word here translated change means to exchange, to substitute one thing for another. So they're substituting the truth of God for a God that they have personally created. Instead of worshiping the true God, they're worshiping the God of their own creation. You know, I think it's important for us to recognize God created us as beings of worship. He created us to worship. The reality is, you know, we're going to worship something. Just what is it? And you look in our world today, everybody's worshiping something. The sad reality is most of them aren't worshiping the something that they should, which is God. So we're created to worship. We should be worshiping the only one who deserves it, which is God. But people will worship all sorts of different things, from money to themselves to other people, whatever it may be. And what Paul is bringing up here is there are those who have traded the truth of who God is, the one who deserves worship, and instead they make for themselves their own God, and then they worship that. And I want you to think about the foolishness of worshiping the God that you have created yourself and actually saying what I just created is now God. You know, we see this throughout the scriptures. We see this throughout the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And don't forget that God has just delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. He has just done miraculous plagues. He's done all these things. He parts the Red Sea. He's shown his power. Moses is gone for a few days and the nation of Israel thinks, He's not coming back. And so they come to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we need you to make us a God. And Aaron, the great high priest that follows God, does something really stupid. And he says, okay, give me all your gold jewelry. And so they bring all this gold jewelry and he makes a golden calf. And I want you to note what they say. Here's this golden calf that they just make. 
And notice their response to it. Exodus 32, verse 4. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, how stupid is that? It was just made, and now we're going to claim this is the thing we just made, brought us out of Egypt, brought the plagues, opened up the Red Sea. Yes, this did it for us. I mean, the foolishness of that statement, we just created this lump of gold, and now we're going to worship it as the God who's delivered us. They took the truth of God and who he really is and substituted it for their golden calf that they had made. You know, this is something that our world is doing so often. Every day, people are substituting the truth of who God is, the one that deserves worship, for the God that they have made, for the God that they want to worship. Their God might not be a golden calf, but for many, it's gold, money, power, riches, people, themselves, anything they substitute and worship instead of the true God. You know, substituting the truth of God for something that we create is really one of the most foolish things that we can do. And Paul wants us to understand the wrath of God is upon us for doing that. Paul's now going to share some more consequences for abandoning truth. Verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Paul just shared with us how these people substituted the truth of God for an idol, for a God of their own making. And in these verses, Paul shares with us a few more exchanges, a few more substitutions that these people are making. First, Paul tells us they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, not just any old lie. Notice it's the lie, specifically referring back to idolatry and the fact that they've said, you know what, we're going to exchange the true God for the God that we make for ourselves. Now, I want you to note how God brings judgment, his wrath. There's a practical wrath that, that goes right along with what it is that these people desire, what it is these people are doing. They're exchanging or substituting the true God for the one that they create. And notice what God does for them. We're told that he gives them over to uncleanness. He gives them over to vile passions. God is giving them over to ultimately what it is their sinful heart desires. We're going to reject the true God, and we're going to worship whatever we desire. And God, in his wrath, gives them over. Okay, If that's your heart, if that's where you want to go, I'm just going to let you continue down that path. You know, sometimes people think, oh, it's in God's mercy that he's allowing people to continue to sin this way. It's not mercy. Because there are great consequences in going down that path. It's not good for you. That's why God warns us as his children stay away from those things. God gives them over to uncleanness, to vile passions. And notice that the exchanges continue. First, the exchange of God, who he is and his truth, with now this exchange for a false God. But the exchanges go on. Women exchange the natural use of men for what is against nature, having sex with other women. 
Men exchanged the natural use of women and burned in lust for one another and committed what is shameful, having sex with other men. I think it's important to note that once you exchange the truth of God for a false God, you start to live against nature. You start to live against the way in which God designed things to work. Once you deny him, the next step is, I will not live the way in which he designed for me to live. When people forsake the author of nature, they will inevitably forsake the order of nature. Warren Wiersbe says this about the connection from idolatry to immorality. From idolatry to immorality is just one short step. If man is his own God, then he can do whatever he pleases and fulfill his desires without fear of judgment. We reach the climax of man's battle with God's truth when man exchanges the truth of God for the lie and abandons truth completely. The lie is that man is his own God and he should worship and serve himself and not the creator. It was the lie Satan used in the Garden of Eden in the garden to lead Eve into sin. You shall be as God. It is important for us to note The Bible very clearly says homosexuality or the lesbian lifestyle is sinful. And I note that because our culture, one of the things that they're trying desperately to attack is that truth. They do not want us as Christians to believe that, to accept that. No, this is just an alternative lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with it. It's okay. We need just to accept it. But not just those, pretty much any type of, you know, different sexual thing that we want to categorize. It's all good. It's all okay. That's what our culture is wanting us to believe. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear here. This is a sin. It goes against the natural order which God has designed. Yo, fornication's a sin. Adultery's a sin. Why? It goes against the natural order. What is God's natural order? One man, one woman in a committed marriage relationship. Any other sexual activity outside of that is against the natural order which God has designed. And this goes to even another extreme, and Paul is bringing that out. Now, I think it's important to note that Paul wrote this to the Romans, he did not write to a group that would like to hear this. He would not, did not write to a group that would have agreed with this reality that this lifestyle is sinful. We look at our culture today and we think that homosexuality is being accepted in great ways. Well, you know what? Rome was way ahead of us in that regard. Rome was a culture where homosexuality was a, a, a completely accepted a part of life for both men and women for over 200 years. They openly practiced this. Many of the emperors had uh, husbands, uh, and actually Nero, who's in power during the writing of this letter, is married to a young boy. Uh, And so, you know, it was very accepted in that culture, uh, this homosexual lifestyle. So Paul is writing to the Romans who live in a culture that says, this is fine. This is normal. This is acceptable. It's okay. And he's saying, no, it is not. It is sinful. Do not agree with the culture's statement on this. You know, when it comes to homosexuality, we as Christians, I think we need to be two things. First, we need to be clear. Homosexuality is a sin. We need to hold to that. We need to recognize that. But second, we need to be kind. Jesus loves those who are in that sin. Jesus gave his life for those who are in that sin. 
I think too often as a church, if you look through church history, we have done a very bad job of loving and reaching people who struggle with this particular sin. I don't know why it's like, hey, I can, I can be okay with you being a murderer or an adulterer or a thief or whatever. That's fine. I'll reach out to you. But, oh, you're homosexual? Nope. Sorry. It's like the unpardonable sin. I don't know why we as a church have ever concluded that. That's not something that we should have. So not only do we need to be clear, yes, it is sinful. Let's not buy into the world's lie that it's not. But let's also reach out to them like we would anyone else. I mean, why is it that that's different? Why is it that we say, well, you know, we can't do that for them? Hey, they're lost in sin. They need Jesus Christ. That's the only way they're going to change. They need the gospel. And so we as believers should reach out to them like we would anyone else living any other lifestyle of sin. So let's not just kind of make it all weird. Hey, reach them. They need that. They need us to be kind. They need us to be loving like we would to anyone who's lost. And they need the gospel. And if we can balance that out, we will do a much better job of reaching those who are lost in that particular way. Stuart Briscoe shares some thoughts about these verses, and I think they're pretty important for where our culture is at today. The logic of Paul's argument should not be missed. Those who reject what they know of God, in so doing, divorce themselves from truth and reality. This means, among other things, that a person out of touch with the reality of God is out of touch with reality, period, including the truth about humanity. To be out of touch with the meaning of humanity means a crisis of identity, which is demonstrated in many ways, not least in confusion about sexuality. When sexuality is misunderstood, the sheer power of unrestrained sexual drive and uneducated sexual insight will produce all manner of abhorrent sexual behavior. In short, confusion about God breeds confusion about man, which breeds confusion about sexuality, which produces sexual confusion and chaos. Far from being, as was fondly imagined by many, an enlightened age of sexual freedom, Paul shows his contemporaries that they live in a dark day of divine wrath. You know, we are in a culture who wants us to believe that we have this sexual identity and freedom like no other culture, and it's all good and all fine, and we just need to accept it all. And it's not true. It is sinful. They are confused. And you know what? Their confusion about their sexuality ultimately comes because they have substituted the truth of God for a lie. That's the problem. That's the issue. Once you reject the creator, you will reject everything that he has established in nature. Paul's going to share with us some more of the consequences to suppressing truth and substituting it, verses 28 through 31. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Once again, we see God in his wrath giving people over to something. Those who do not retain God in their knowledge, God gives them over to a debased mind. 
Those who take a choice, I'm, I'm going to choose to reject God in my thinking. I'm going to choose to reject God in my knowledge. I'm going to choose ultimately to reject God in my mind. God's consequence of that is, okay, fine. If that's what you want, I'll give you over to that kind of thinking. I will give you over to a debased mind. You want to reject me in your thinking, then I'm going to give you the natural consequence of doing that. And notice the result. He gives this huge list, the result of ultimately having a debased mind. When your mind rejects God and all the standard of morality that he places, the consequences of that are huge. People become, a debased mind results in debased human character. People become unrighteous, wicked, covetous, malicious, envious, God-haters, despiteful, proud, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. A debased mind results in debased human conduct. People become guilty of sexual immorality, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, backbiters, violence, and disobedient to parents. A debased mind results in debased human concepts. People become evil-minded and inventors of evil things. This is a very dark description of humanity, but the sad reality is you look around our culture today, and this is a very accurate description of humanity as well. Because when you reject God in your mind and your thinking, it directly impacts your character, it impacts your conduct, and it impacts the concepts of how you see things. You know, in Isaiah's day, this was happening as well, and so Isaiah gave the people of his day a warning Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's a warning that our culture needs. Woe to those who call sin good and good sin. And that's what we're doing. We're saying what the Bible says, the culture, oh, that's wrong, that's sinful. What we're doing is good. What we're doing is right. What we're doing is acceptable. Oh, no, it's not. The fourth thing that Paul is going to reveal to us concerning this attack on truth is how this world ignores God's truth. And this final one to me is one of the most sad realities of the knowledge that they have. Verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul has shared with us that the world knows things. It's what they do with that knowledge that is problematic. They know that there is a God because of creation, but they suppress that truth. That's the problem. He also shared that this world knows that there's a God, but they substitute it. The God that they know that they should worship, they substitute it for their own God they, they choose to worship. There's a knowledge of God. What they choose to do with that is the problem. And now we come to another knowledge. And what they choose to do this with this one is maybe even a little more shocking. Notice what they know. They know the righteous judgment of God and that those who practice such things are deserving of death. They have a knowledge that what they are doing is wrong and will be judged by God. Their conscience in which God has designed them reveals this truth to them. Paul's saying they know this. Wow, if you know God's judgment's coming upon you, if you know this is going to happen, surely you're going to respond with, how can I escape that? How can I not do this anymore? But notice their response. They just ignore the knowledge of God's judgment. Not only do they do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They just keep on sinning. They just keep on doing it. They don't care. 
They're just ignoring this, maybe hoping if I just ignore it and don't think about it, it will never happen to me. They're not just sinning themselves. They're approving of others. They take delight in the fact that others do it with them. No one wants to sin alone. They want someone else, and they're approving of that. They're excited about that. They want others to be in this boat with them. They've ignored the truth of God's judgment, but you know what? Ignoring that truth is not going to escape God's judgment. And that's a sad reality for the world. I think so many have bought into a lie that it doesn't exist, or if I just don't think about it, or if I don't think about hell, if I don't think about God's judgment or wrath, it'll never happen. Ignoring it and not believing in it doesn't change the fact that it is true and it is real and it is coming. John Piper said this about these verses. Paul's teaching about why a society degenerates into unrestrained, debauched, destructive evil is like any analysis you would read today. One of the reasons for this is that when a society is sinking into moral decay, one of the traits of that decay is the inability to see what is happening. The social mind becomes so defective in the moral decadence that it doesn't have the categories or the framework to recognize evil for what it is. We do live in such a day. The inability to render sound moral judgment is evident almost wherever you look, which makes this passage of scripture one of the most relevant and needed texts in all of the Bible for us today precisely because it seems so foreign. This is such an important passage to grasp because it's so attacked today. The world is attacking God's truth. They suppress it. They substitute it. They ignore it. But you know what? It's not going to change the reality that it's true and that judgment is coming unless they get right with God. God's wrath is upon the world who denies his truth. And God's wrath is seen practically today as he gives people over to the sin that their hearts desire, which ultimately enslave them even more. But the Bible says there's one way to be free. Free from God's wrath, free from slavery to sin. Jesus said this in John 8, 32, 1 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth of God's word, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what he has done for us on the cross, those are the truths that bring freedom. Freedom from a life of slavery to sin. There's no other way to gain that freedom. It's only through acceptance of who Jesus is and what he's done. The lies of the world will keep you in bondage to sin, but the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God's word is what brings you and I freedom. You know, this world believes in lies. They desperately need the truth of the gospel. But you know what? Too many of us as Christians, we might accept the gospel, but oftentimes we reject some of the truths in God's word. We need to make sure that as we live the Christian life, that we are holding to those truths, that we believe those truths, that we're free to live the life that God truly desires us to live. The gospel, it needs to start with the bad news as we proclaim to this world what it is, where they're at. They need to know God's wrath upon them. They need to know they're sinners. They need to know there's a consequence of sin, not only now, but for the eternal future in hell. And then they need to hear the good news. It doesn't end there. It's not this horrible news of you're a sinner and there's this consequence and sorry, 
There's no hope. Sorry, you're bound for hell. Sorry, nothing can change your circumstance. Nothing can change the state you're in. If that was the news, it'd be pretty miserable. But there's good news. God loves you. He was born. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. He made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. He made it possible for us to escape the judgment of hell because of what he has done for us. But you can't understand how good that is, how gracious that is, how merciful that is, how loving that is, until you understand I am a wretched sinner who deserves God's wrath and it is coming upon me unless I get right with Jesus Christ. Let's pray.